Good morning, and thank you, friends. Well, if we haven't met yet, my name is Natalia, and I get to serve here as one of the pastors, and we are so glad that you are here this morning and that you chose to spend your morning here with this community. Um, and those of you who are joining on live stream, thanks for being here. So a year and a half ago today, my husband and I purchased our first home Yay! <laughs> we were thrilled. And of course, like any home, it wasn't perfect, but it was perfect for us. The two of us had been working two jobs, and we were not only excited to move in, but start our Pinterest-worthy, Home Depot trip-worthy DIY projects. I had so many Pinterest boards, you guys. I have lost track. <laughs> After all, you know, with all of these ideas, replacing the floors could not be that hard or expensive, right? Right, right. Okay, we thought that we had planned and budgeted, not only for the projects, but the unforeseen problems or setbacks that can come with them. You know, like a margin of 50 bucks per project. We thought that would be sufficient, more so sufficient than actually. Um, you know, because that's enough to buy like a few paintbrushes or some painter's tape or maybe a drop cloth, but it is not enough for really big projects. But you know, we were wise. We planned for things to go wrong. We had great advice when we bought our house. Well, two days after receiving the keys to our home and starting to move in and paint the interior, we had a pack of family and friends in the house helping us, and it was so amazing and so fun. And I walked outside to my car to grab something, and I saw the neighbor across the street approaching me. And I thought, oh my gosh, I get to meet our first neighbor. I was stoked. Right? Like, that's one of the things you look forward to when you're in community, living in a neighborhood. We lived in apartments. Surprisingly, people in apartments were more to themselves. So I was stoked. I was like, this is the dream. We have a house. We're going to meet the neighbors. Our families are going to grow up together. It's going to be great. <laughs> um, so yeah, he was coming up to us. I thought that he was going to greet us and say, hey, welcome to the neighborhood. Um, but to my surprise, he actually greeted me with a question. Did you get an inspection? Yeah, of course we did. That is a part of the home buying process. We did our due diligence, and our real estate agent is awesome. So the inspector told you about the water damage, right? The, the what? <laughs> Who? Who are you talking about? The siding, they said, the siding that was installed on these homes was installed poorly, or maybe it was just bad siding, or maybe it was the flashing problem, I don't know. But most of the houses on our loop have water damage on the exterior walls, and the door frames, and some structural supports, maybe more. And um, so I said, yeah, our inspection did not find that. Thank you for the heads up, though. And then I looked around our loop, and I realized for the first time, that the homes that had had the vinyl siding replaced was probably not just for aesthetic reasons. <laughs> this was a setback. Can you raise your hand if you've ever experienced a setback? I want to see it. Have you experienced? Oh, great. It's all of us? Awesome. I'm there with you. So maybe you've experienced a recent setback or a setback from months ago or years ago that feels like it is still hanging on for dear life, sucking the life 
out of you. A setback may not always be the same as a trauma or a crisis, but setbacks are a big deal. They suck. They are harsh and painful. Even if you felt like you prepared for the setback, the actual experience still comes as a shock. Life hardly ever happens the way that we imagined it, right? So many of us were promised a prosperity gospel by the world around us. One that said, if you just do life right, if you pick a good job field, if you wait to have kids, if you start a family early, if you blank, you will get what you want. You'll get what you deserve and actually what you earned. The thing is, our expectations, whether we have consciously chosen them or unconsciously inherited them from the world, our family, or the people around us, these expectations shape the way we experience our life. We experience or interpret something as a setback based on our expectation for the experience. The thing is, we don't typically expect something to go wrong. And why would we? Brayden and I did not enter the home buying process expecting to double our down payment on siding. That was a real surprise. When we don't get what we imagined, though, or what we felt like the Lord has called us to, it is disillusioning and confusing and frustrating, right? When you experience a setback, how do you respond? Are you calm? Just totally at peace with it? Are you infuriated or overwhelmed? Maybe setbacks cause you to become anxious or stressed. I know they do for me. Or maybe we deflect and target the blame on someone else. Our spouse, our parents, our neighbors, our coworkers, our children. That certainly changes the way we might have imagined life to go. Or maybe you have been the recipient of someone else's blame. The thing is, Jesus is going to insist that we master responding to setbacks. How we respond shows others whose we are. How we respond should make others ask, who would do that? Who would say that? Who would respond in that way to such a terrible situation? I wish I could say that my initial response to a setback is always, God, you've got this. I know you got this. But let's be real, it's not. Has a setback ever caused you to doubt God? Or your beliefs? Or yourself, maybe? Ilsean shared about that last week in her message. So I want to know, how do you prepare for setbacks? How do you think God feels when you experience a setback? At the end of this message, I'm going to ask you to consider responding to setbacks in a new and formidable way. In this teaching series that we've been in this last few weeks called I Have Questions, we are looking at some of the early events where Jesus appeared to his disciples after his resurrection. And the disciples' experience with these things. I mean, I can only imagine that it was wild, right? Put yourself in the disciples' shoes. Imagine that your mentor, who was incredible and did incredible things, actually came back to life. Like three days after he died, he came back to life. And this was not like a weird zombie experience or anything. It made the disciples say, whoa, holy whoa. 
Jesus, he really meant it. He is God's son, but he is also God. Can you imagine that? Like, that must have been a wild time. So here we are in John 21. Jesus appears to his disciples for the third time after his resurrection. And here's what happens. Again, imagine this frame of mind the disciples have. Later, Jesus appeared again to the disciples beside the Sea of Galilee. And this is how it happened. Several of the disciples were there. Simon Peter, Thomas, nicknamed the twin, or you'll see this word Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, James and John, and two other disciples. Simon Peter said, I'm going to go fishing. We'll come too, they all said. So they went onto the boat, but they caught nothing all night. I just imagine like being up all day, you're figuring out, gosh, what do we do? Like life after Jesus. And then you're like, we're going to go back to fishing but you spend the whole night fishing, and you get nothing. And these guys are professional fishermen. This was weird. They, didn't, they knew where to fish, when to fish, how to fish. They knew it all. This was their life. This was literally a fishing town. Maybe it's because they've been traveling and ministering with Jesus for the last three years, two, three years, and they're a little rusty. I don't know. At dawn, Jesus was standing on the beach, but the disciples couldn't see who he was. And Jesus called out, fellows, have y'all caught any fish? No, they replied. And then he said, throw out your net on the right-hand side of the boat, and you'll get some. The disciples didn't know it was Jesus talking, right? They couldn't see him, but they could hear him. Maybe the disciples assumed that someone from the shore had a better vantage point to see a school of fish in the shallow waters. We don't know exactly what happened. But they did it. They cast their net on the other side of the boat, and they couldn't haul in the net because there were so many fish in it. And then the disciple Jesus loved, that's John, he said to Peter, it's the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his tunic because he had been wearing like a fishing apron, and then he jumped into the water and headed straight to Jesus. Like, peace out, guys. Straight up, classic Peter here, he left what his friends were doing, and he beelined it to Jesus, which is pretty cool, honestly, but I feel bad for his friends. <laughs> the others, they stayed in the boat, and they pulled and loaded the net to shore, and they were, not, they were only about 100 yards from the shore. So then when they got to the shore, they found breakfast waiting for them, fish cooking over a charcoal fire and some bread. And the fact that Jesus had a charcoal fire and breakfast waiting for them is kind of an interesting point we're going to circle back to, okay? Bring some of the fish you've just caught, Jesus said. So Simon Peter went aboard and dragged the net to the shore. There were 153 fish, and yet the net had not torn. Wild. Now come and have some breakfast, Jesus said. None of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? For they knew it was the Lord. And then Jesus served them bread and fish, great breakfast, right? This was the third time that Jesus had appeared to the disciples since he had been raised from the dead. Jesus' response to the disciples' setback was to provide more abundance than they could handle, more than they had set out for or asked for or even hoped for. And he gave a ridiculous suggestion, moving their net from one side of the boat to the other. Some suggest that the steering oar was normally on the right side of the boat, and so that casting would be done from the left, making Jesus' suggestion unusual. 
And why? Why would moving the net from one side to the other make a difference? Well, based on my research of first century fishing in the Sea of Galilee, that was a fun rabbit hole, y'all, um, casting your net to the other side of the boat would not have made a difference. The key here is that the disciples moved their net in response to Jesus' direction. They didn't even know it was Jesus, though, when they followed this suggestion. They probably said, well, we don't have anything else to lose, or I don't know. We just spent the last few years with Jesus. We've seen crazier things happen. So they moved their net, and they got an enormous, unthinkable, God-sized result. And then they knew. They knew who gave them the direction. See, this event reminded them of something that had happened a few years earlier. In Luke 5, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, it was a miraculous catch of fish that was the start of this same guy, Simon Peter's, journey with Jesus, as well as several other disciples. In the event, three years before, Jesus was preaching on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, same area, but the crowd was so large that the people were literally crowding him, and he needed space, and he needed um, a better way to carry his voice to a crowd this size. So he looked around, he saw an empty boat, he went to the owner, Simon Peter, the same guy, and said, hey, could you stop what you're doing, your work, your whatever, and take me out on your boat? And so Peter did it. And here's what happened in Luke 5. When Jesus finished speaking, he said to Simon, same guy, now when we go out where it is deeper, let down your nets and catch some fish. Master, Simon replied, we worked hard all last night and didn't catch a thing. Not a little fish, not some seaweed, nothing. But if you say so, I'll let down the nets again. And this time, their nets were so full of fish that they began to tear. A shout for help brought their partners and another boat, and soon both boats were, to, were filled with fish and on the verge of sinking. Jesus replied to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you will be fishing for people. You're going to be coming with me. And as soon as they landed, they left everything and followed Jesus. And how could you not, when something that wild happens, how could you not say, I'm going to follow you? You are, you are incredible. In Judaism, an abundant catch was a sign interpreted um, of God's favor and blessing. And in the story that we're talking about today, after Jesus' resurrection, where he tells them to try casting their nets on the other side of the boat, it is an echo, a vivid reminder to the disciples that this is the way their journey began. The same Jesus who called them is resurrected and is calling them again to continue the work of loving people, reaching people, and sharing the hope of Jesus. So I have a question for you. What do you do? when life does not go the way that you expected. Some of the believers, um, or some people believe that the disciples went back to fishing after Jesus' death, since this was their prior occupation. This could be interpreted as the disciples giving up and saying, I don't know what to do now, but I know how to fish. Others believe that the disciples are found in Galilee because of an experience right after the resurrection. Two of Jesus' disciples had gone to the tomb after his death to embalm his body, and there they encountered an angel who explained why Jesus' body was actually missing from the tomb. And the angel in Matthew 28, 7 directs the disciples and says, now go quickly and tell the disciples that he has risen from the dead. 
He is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there. Remember what I have told you. No matter the reason that the disciples were fishing, Jesus seriously showed up. How do you respond to setbacks? In your head, what is the dialogue? In your heart, how do setbacks feel in your body? Do they make you restless, anxious, like you want to stomp or scream in a pillow? In my experience, in the experience of the disciples, there's kind of this process of events when it comes to setbacks. And it looks something like this. We have our plan, we're gonna do it our way, and then we experience the setback, and we have to respond to it, right? We've all lived this before. Sometimes the plan that we have or the execution may have been our best interpretation of where God was guiding us. And that can make the setback even more confusing. Setbacks can cause us to have some big questions. Why, God? Why did you let this happen? Where are you? Our questions often assert, though, that we must have had a better plan or that the setback will serve no purpose. And most of the time, it really feels this way. A setback is no small thing. You didn't ask for it. An incredible inconvenience. It's an unexpected hurdle that usually we don't feel like we have time for. We barely had time for the project or for the thing that we were doing or the interaction. And now this? Really? When the disciples set out to fish after Jesus' death and then they were unsuccessful at catching fish, they probably thought, gosh, we can't even do this anymore? What do we do? The life of a fisherman was one of constant disappointment and setbacks. They could only do so much to control the success of their fishing trip. Does that sound similar to our lives? We can only do so much to control the outcome? And then Jesus showed up unexpectedly. The disciples, though they knew that Jesus was resurrected, they thought that they were alone in their work on this day. They thought they were alone in their setback. Jesus' appearance reminds the disciples and us that God is not absent in our setbacks. When facing an obstacle, we cannot imagine a way around or through. God invites us to look the other direction, up. You see, in this sequence of events, God is not absent, even if we didn't plan for him to be there. While the setback surprises us, it didn't surprise God. He is not shocked. He is not shook. And more than that, he is actually planned for it. When we're processing the distress that a setback causes us, Jesus is feeling the feels with us, but he also smiles and tenderly says, it's okay. I knew this would happen. There is a way out. There is a path forward. God is not absent in our setback. So when facing setbacks, we can start by following some of the examples that we learned from the disciples and Jesus in this story. And I'm going to tell you in advance, some of these things, we've got the first one up here asking for help, that it does not sound new, probably, right? But the thing about the Bible is sometimes when we hear or read it a lot or we get the advice from the people around us, it kind of just becomes noise. And then when we actually are experiencing something like a setback, we go back to this response that is from our gut, that immediate response, right? 
And so these things that we're gonna talk about today, I'm going to ask you to seriously consider them. Maybe to take some notes, maybe to set a reminder, whatever it takes to begin thinking about this in a new way. So when facing setbacks, we can start by asking for help from God and from others. Remember that the disciples didn't know it was Jesus from the shore. So they were taking advice from what they believed to be a stranger. We can ask God for help too. We can pray, we can journal, we can take a walk and talk to God. We've got some good weather for that right now. We can call a trusted friend or mentor to help process a path forward. And y'all, at least for me, this can be vulnerable. It is one of the hardest options, actually, because it means admitting that things didn't go the way that I had imagined or intended or communicated or committed to, and it may or may not have been our fault. This has the potential, though, to deepen your relationship with God and with others. This is bearing our way through life together, doing real life together. The next thing that we see from the story is that Jesus reminds us to fuel ourselves, to eat, right? Jesus fed them when they got to shore. He had a picnic ready for them. He planned for them. And I mean, we kind of know this, right? Like when we don't get enough energy um, or food to keep our body fueled, our brain flicks into survival mode, essentially switching off the parts of our brain that are responsible for conscious, intellectual, logical reasoning. And it leaves us with this more basic survival brain in the driver's seat. And that doesn't set anyone else up for success. When I have a strong response to a situation, one of the first things that my husband ever so kindly asks me is, when was the last time that you ate? <laughs> and also, what did you eat? Because some things fuel our body better than others. Hangry is real, right? <laughs> The next thing that we see from the story is that Jesus invites us to consider trying a new method or strategy. We have to be willing to try something new. Jesus' suggestion was not one that they had probably thought of before. It was not the usual response to fishing trip dilemmas. But when God gives us direction and creativity and maybe problem solving, we have to actually be willing to give it a go. This is how we begin to discern the voice of God and learn to trust it. We also find that Jesus pauses and then continues. Jesus didn't just call the disciples to the shore when he saw them struggling. He encouraged them to try again. He could have just been like, hey, come to the shore. I can make you food, right? Like he can do miraculous things, but he didn't. He said, try again, be vulnerable, be willing to risk failure. Maybe that you have experienced a shock or a setback, where pressing on caused you to be nervous of the outcome. Maybe, like us, your house project did not go the way that you expected. Maybe you were rejected by the perfect job and were uncertain how to continue. Maybe you've struggled to start a family. Maybe parenting your kids did not go the way that you had imagined it. Or maybe your relationships with your family didn't go the way you had imagined it. Life is littered with setbacks. And though it's painful and scary to consider, even more so to do something about it, Jesus invites us, encourages us, in many cases, to try again, to dare to hope. 
And finally, community. When the disciples came to the shore, Jesus didn't congratulate them and leave. He didn't immediately remind them of their job. He didn't ask them what they were doing fishing. Hey, did you give up? There was no questions. He invited them to brunch. He was like, hey, come to La Provence with me, you know? He invited them to friendship. He reminded them that setbacks are not meant to be experienced and handled alone. They are meant to be cared for in community, much like what we discovered about Ilsean's message last week about doubt. So what is the setback you're facing right now? Could you consider responding in these challenging and vulnerable ways? By the way, if you're wondering what happened to our unexpected sighting project, it's fixed. We were amazed and grateful to experience that with Jesus, the unexpected is not the end. So we don't have to respond like it's the end. Jesus is going to insist that we master responding to setbacks. How we respond shows others whose we are. How we respond makes others ask, who would do that? What kind of person would respond to an infuriating setback like this? Who would say that, right? Reactions tell the whole story. Not only about what happened, but who we are on the inside and who is shaping us. Worship team, you're welcome to come up. And if we're not careful how we look, sound, and react, and choose who informs how we react, we'll react like everyone else. Like the way that we tell ourselves we didn't want to or we won't. How is everyone else going to know what the Father is like if it is not by how we respond to the hardest things in life? I'm not saying that you don't have room to be human or to have feelings, to process and respond. You don't have to be superhuman. You don't have to be Jesus. But we want to be shaped by Jesus. The Bible exists so that not only can we learn about God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit and history, but also so that we can see how Jesus responded to some of the most difficult and frustrating circumstances. When Jesus faced obstacles, potential setbacks, before and after his death, he didn't give up. He turned to the Father for strength, for support, for healing, for peace, and for guidance. Setbacks are not the end. They are not a sign of God's absence, but they are an invitation to press in and try some new strategies. Let's pray together. God, as we consider setbacks that we've experienced recently, or maybe months or years ago, that are hanging on, we just pray that you will help us to shape our expectation around you, around who you are, around the way that you always come through. God, we pray that our expectation is that you will be moving in our lives, that you will be there when we have setbacks, that we are not alone in setbacks, and that setbacks are not the end. God, we just pray for your help in responding to setbacks, that you will give us the strength and the peace and the capacity to pause before we react to consider, okay, man, this is not what I had planned, but what, what could I do 
How would Jesus respond? How would his disciples respond? How can I show the people around me, my family, my children, my friends, my coworkers, my neighbors, that there is someone shaping the way that I respond to the hardest things in life, the things that we didn't expect or imagine or plan for. God, we, we just wanna, we wanna create an opportunity for anyone here who says, you know, I'm new to this Jesus thing, but having some help responding to setbacks and the hardest thing in life sounds good. So if you'd like to invite Jesus into your life and into your heart, for the first time and say, God, will you be with me and help me? I want to invite you to look up. Everyone else's eyes are closed. You can look up at here. And I want to agree with you and say, you're not alone in this. God is with you. God's got you. Father, we thank you for who you are in our lives, for the hope that you give us, that we are never alone, especially not in the hardest of times. We're so grateful that we can turn to you for hope, for strength, for joy, for perseverance, for energy. You are so good. Amen.